And welcome to this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. Our guest is Sean Wallace. He's a premier political analyst. He served in the White House as a staff member of the Republican presidential administrations of George H.W. Bush and Ronald Reagan, a longtime political advisor and a lawyer, a principal of Wilson Walsh. He has worked on issues which intersect with regulators, law enforcement, political constituencies, the media, and the public. And he has over 35 years, make, make that 30 years, excuse me, of uh, senior-level experience in federal and state government, politics, policy, and communication. And when I toiled in the world of public radio, he was a great go-to source for a balanced Republican and conservative view. Conservative has a different meaning in the Bay Area. One has to concede immediately, but he has been certainly active in GOP politics, and he advises clients in the private sector as well, is on the statewide leadership council for the Public Policy Institute of California and the advisory board for the World Affairs Council of America. And if you have questions or comments, please feel free to bring them to us. We will try to get to as many of you as we can, and let me welcome Sean Walsh. Good to have you. Thank you, Michael. Great to be here. Great to have you. I think the place I'd like to begin is with politics, and then maybe we can go into geopolitics, and we'll take questions and comments for you. But I was thinking when Vice President Pence said the other day that uh, the Republican Party didn't begin with that escalator, um, he was probably speaking for a lot of well, old-style Republicans and Republicans from previous administrations. Uh, are we in the cult of Trump now? Is that what the Republican Party has become, as many seem to say? Uh, a little bit. I mean, you've got activists both in both sides of the party. Unfortunately, some of the activists are driving the train in our party right now. Um, I would say, uh, flip it, if, um, if President Biden didn't appear to be so weak, if his polling wasn't so poor and some of the mental faculty issues, I think there would be a stronger case for some of the other Republicans. Um, but right now, with Donald Trump being as vulnerable as he is, and he is for many Republicans in my ilk, think he's the worst of the candidates that we have to actually beat Joe Biden, but it keeps him in the game. Um, and I think there's some folks that feel on the activist side that he can go out and bang on President Biden's age and his mental acuity and other issues where other Republicans won't, and that's just red meat. So sadly, um, as the Nixon axiom said, you run to the right in a primary and you run to the left in a general. I just think we run kind of crazy with Donald Trump um, all the way through the whole process, and he is attracting primary voters again. So he's he may very well be the nominee of the Republican Party. He may very well indeed. I mean, right now he's in the lead, despite the fact that polls show Nikki Haley could do a better job of beating than Biden than, than, than Trump could, at least for the president. We're still a long way off from the presidential election by most standards. A lot can happen. Yeah, I'm, well, I, I was very happy— I guess I, I felt kind of with the Maytag repairman alone. After watching that debate, the analysis showed that they thought that um, DeSantis did the best. Um, and I felt, honestly, that Nikki Haley actually performed the best. Um, she was a little bit um, stern, in my view. She didn't bring some humor or warmth to it. But I think the strategy going into that was, I'm tough enough to fight with the big boys on the stage. And she achieved that. And she was thoughtful and aggressive, her comments on abortion, I think were spot on, that the Supreme Court has ruled, but you're not going to get in Congress the things that you want to have in Congress for a, a national ban. So she was tough enough to take on taboo topics, both in the Democrat and Republican Party, and I think she did it well. So my my hope right now is that she continues to do well and 
I, you know, I have a soft spot in my heart for uh, Senator Scott, and I was hoping he would do well, but he's got to get off of his, you know, uh, personal story and get into substantive issues and engage in, in those kinds of debates. Uh, I was a little embarrassed, uh, actually a lot embarrassed, that the moderators in that debate, and particularly the producers, as you well know from your years of experience, they're the army that really makes these programs work, did not admonish the crowd at the beginning to be quiet and let these people speak. And they shouted down Chris Christie uh, when he was talking about uh, President Trump. It was an embarrassment and important issues that could have been raised weren't raised. So mm -hmm. I think as we go forward and if as Trump continues to refuse to debate, I think he's got more of a vulnerability because he has no ability to, in a real time rebut the attacks that will continue on him, particularly from people like Chris Christie and I think uh, from Nikki Haley. And probably for Mesa Hutchinson, although I don't know really what kind of a profile he is getting at this point. But, you know, I'm sort of evaluating, and maybe you can help me understand this to a greater degree, why there's no mention of 91 felonies or four indictments, even by Christie, I mean, who was once a very close ally of Trump's. And there's no mention, for that matter, from the White House and Biden either. It's like these are sacrosanct topics to talk about a president who's under four indictments. Well, I mean, so partly, if you watch that debate closely, at least for the first half of the debate, anything that was raised uh, that was critical of Trump, and Christie, I think, was teeing up an attack on the indictments, and he literally got shouted down. The man could not get out the points he was trying to make because the crowd was so you know, uh, obnoxious. And so, you know, in the future, I think they shouldn't even have crowds at these debates. They sh it should be a closed room, have the journalists ask the questions, or if you want to have some community people be involved as part of the panel, I'm fine with that. But I, this crowd mobs, it actually was kind of embarrassing. It almost reminded you of the January 6th mobs that they didn't like what they heard, so they kind of got raucous. So, or a Trump I rally. Uh, I mean, it was like a, it yeah. was a MAGA crowd. Uh, if you had more state Republicans, you probably wouldn't have had that kind of response. Maybe has something to do, as you say, with how the producers set everything up. That's the key to this. But at the same time, this big tent that Lee Atwater used to talk about for the Republican Party, now you've got everybody from Marjorie Taylor Greene on the one hand to Mitt Romney. This is not necessarily a unified party, nor is it a party that believes in the 11th commandment that Ronald Reagan spoke about when he said, do not speak ill about any fellow Republican. Donald Trump speaking ill about Republicans all the time, so is Marjorie Taylor Greene. So for that matter is Mitt Romney. Yeah, but as the old saying goes, with the two guys running through the forest, um, and the one guy looks over to the other guy as the bear is chasing him and breathing on them. How fast are you? And the other guy leans over and goes, doesn't matter. I'm faster than you are. Uh, we've got our problems, but the Democratic Party has their own problems. They are still suffering significantly from the, I don't know if it's a Black Lives Matter movement, it's the anarchists. I mean, the, the whole Black Lives Matter movement, the defund the police, that had its roots in um, anarchy folks with regards to economic issues. And it morphed into that issue. It morphed into attacking the police and changing our criminal justice system. And it's not just Oakland where I live, where my car was stolen. And we've had half a dozen, half a dozen, had a dozen carjacking attempts in my neighborhood, including a shooting at the high school a quarter of a mile down the street from my house. So there are real, real issues that I think that were driven largely by Democratic policies that are going to be major campaign issues in this coming election. 
And the Democrats are starting to fight amongst themselves about how they're going to backtrack on some of the policies they adopted. So uh, you look also, I think uh, James Carvo went on uh, CNN today or yesterday, uh, criticized Biden and his administration for the points you're making, that he's hiding out, he's not taking Trump on on certain issues, he's not raising indictment issues. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Hunter Biden himself his son is under investigation. There's questions about what role, if any, he played in getting the contracts and deals with Ukraine, with China, and another other issues. So the figure is, if you pop up and attack Trump on criminal issues, you shine a spotlight potentially on yourself while there's a special counsel looking at you. I don't subscribe to that issue. My view is if there's a problem, you go at it head on uh, and you don't hide. But I think uh, there's a little bit of a um, quixotic uh the uh, attitude in the Democratic Party and particularly amongst Biden's inner circle about how he approaches this election. Well, even Eric Adams now has spoken out about the kind of problems that migrants have brought to New York. He says New York is going to become a disaster unless we get more aid from the feds. And you've got people even within the party uh, criticizing President Biden for not doing enough on that score. That's going to be a big issue. What you have mentioned about well, it gets into homelessness and it gets into crime in this uh, urban areas, particularly metropolitan areas. But the big issue, it seems, for the Republicans, and I don't know how they're going to come at it, is abortion. And those who went on the Supreme Court, uh, I mean, it hurt them tremendously, hurt your party tremendously in the midterms, and it's going to hurt again. Uh, well, I uh, so you raised three issues, and I'm going to take them kind of in order the way you raised them. I think the immigration issue is absolutely positively a strong problem for the Democrats. So my partner and my law firm, our consulting group uh, is former California governor and U.S. Senator Pete Wilson. He was vilified for taking on the issue of illegal immigration, Proposition 187, really, that was designed to make the federal government enforce its own immigration laws, uh, protect the borders, etc. And he stated in the most clearest terms, if we do not deal with this issue now, was about 30 years ago, 25, 30 years ago, this is going to be an issue 25 years from now. Guess what? Bing. It is an issue. And it's an, largely an issue now on the national consciousness is because these border state governors have been putting people on buses and driving them to Democrat states. And now you've got people that are very angry and very upset. Uh, so the problems that Arizona and California and Texas have faced uh, over the years are now the problems of New York and the problems of Illinois and the problems of other states. And so it is a major issue. I think it's a major issue insofar as um, depressing potential Democrats from coming out and voting in the election. I, I So I talk to, as I always do, uh, a number of Democrat consultants before I did this program and just got their general sense of what is concerning them coming into this election. And they think the immigration, homelessness, and crime issues are very, very concerning, as is inflation. Uh, if I go on to the next uh, matter you raised, which regards to abortion, I absolutely agree with you. I think that is a critical issue. It's a critical issue insofar as perhaps driving more Democrats to the polls. I don't think it's a driver for the African—well, I was told it's not a driver for the African-American vote, but it certainly is a driver for uh, urban Democrat women, and it's a vote suppressor for urban Republican women. And, and uh, you know, California, if that matters in this election— uh, you know, white males who don't want to see the government dictating a 
person's right to choose in a woman's body. So I think that hangover certainly goes into this next election cycle. And that's probably our biggest problem with regards to voter turnout. Uh, and our second biggest problem is if Trump is on the ballot, I know for a fact there are a whole host of former Reagan and former Bush Republicans that just can't stomach having Trump back uh, being the president of the United States. And not that they would vote for Joe Biden, uh, even though they did vote for him in the last election. They just have no confidence in him, so they're just going to stay home. So um, I just think that that's a major, major issue and probably our biggest issue going into the next yeah, election. But 70 million people voted for Trump, and a lot of people don't like to admit that maybe they were conned or they voted for the wrong person. I'm also struck by your mentioning James Carville because he was the one, of course, who said it's the economy, stupid, and that's a real issue. And there are those who look at the numbers, the numbers of jobs that have been created and inflation starting to come down, and they say, this is an incumbent president should be a lot getting and all that he's done with infrastructure, getting more credit than he is actually getting. And the other argument is the Republican Party, the GOP, was supposed to be always the fiscal conservative party under the Trump administration. I think what the debt went up 40 percent thanks to the tax cut, maybe, or thanks to a few other elements that we could single out. Uh, it's no longer the party of fiscal conservatism. Well, a couple things. Number one, with regards to Trump. Trump was not a lifelong Republican. People are under this impression that Trump was a Republican business guy, real estate guy. His Historically, he was a lifelong Democrat. That's right. And he acted as a Democrat in most of his campaign giving and the way he, he was involved in politics. And he saw an opportunity to run for president as a Republican. It was an opportunistic thing, and he did it, and he won. Um, so, but, you know, he is not in the mode of, you know, fiscal conservative and you can say, you know, the Republican Party has always fought over, you know, cultural issues about what, what, you know, religious conservatives want to see versus California Republicans or New England Republicans want to see on social issues. But that, that was historically our battle. Trump didn't care a rat's patoot about, um, the fiscal issues, because that was not where he was raised. His view was if he spent money, people would like him. And so he did it, and his followers didn't care, and that was that. So I, I just don't consider President Trump a historic Republican or even really much of a Republican other than the opportunity arose for him to take that position. Uh, the second issue with regards to um, the Democrats, and Carville kind of alluded to this, uh, Joe Biden does not come out of the White House very often. He does not go around the country. He's not stumping for his economy, that the jobs are good. As you mentioned, that inflation's coming down, although I would still argue it's still very, very high. There's a bad hangover on that. I mean, gas prices in our state, I was in Oregon this week on business, and their gas prices are still very, very high. So, um, so I think if he comes out, he's somewhat vulnerable on the inflation front, but I just think it's inescapable. I know it's going to offend some of your listeners, but Joe Biden's age, uh, his ability to go out and sustain a campaign, uh, I think is problematic. And I think his advisors are concerned that he, if he goes out and does a typical presidential three city whistle stop, that he will not have the capacity to carry that off effectively. He might stumble going up Air Force One. He may, you know, say something odd. So they're playing a kind of bunker um, incumbent strategy. And I think Carvel's warning them, rightly so, because he's an incredibly bright consultant and still probably one of the best the Democrats have, that this is not a winning strategy and, and the party may need to 
course, I have to footnote someone. the fact that there's only a couple of years between Trump and Biden, and uh, I think Biden has actually been out more on the hustings than Trump was. Uh, Trump was a lot at the golf course, but he wasn't necessarily out there shaking hands or meeting the public. But I was going to ask you, speaking about strategists like Carville, uh, Mike Murphy, whom I'm sure you know, was an advisor to Romney and McCain, has said that these attempts to impeach Biden, uh, it's interesting that Marjorie Taylor Greene seems to be leading the pack, and I want to talk to you about the whole difficulty now of moving to try to essentially shut things down financially. They wouldn't have the money to impeach Biden if they did that, but that's another story. I just want to get your take, though, on the fact that um, the, the GOP in next year's elections, according to Mike Murphy, uh, will find itself in a disaster if they move forward on this impeachment. you agree with that? I mean, impeaching well, Biden. Yeah. So here's my take. Um, there's an awful lot of information we still don't know about President Biden and his interactions with his son. I mean, look, so I was in Washington for a long time. I was in the White House for President Reagan and Bush. I, you know, this kindly uncle Joe Biden, somebody wrote a story, I think Axios about a month ago that said, you know, aides are concerned about Biden's explosive temper. It's like, what are you talking about? I mean, Joe Biden's always had a really, he's had a folksy, you know, Irish guy slap you on the back, but he's always had a volcanic temper. And so, I mean, anybody who's been around Joe Biden knows that that's the case. My point being here is don't go out and do things that you don't need to do. With regards to Biden, and I think his temper will flare, I think it will hurt himself politically when the natural process takes hold. Let the Justice Department continue to do what it's doing, investigate Hunter Biden, and let it take its course with regards to if Joe Biden was involved in China money, uh, Ukraine money, or any other sorts of money, and let Congress continue to hold those hearings and suss out that information and be a pressure point on the Justice Department to make sure they do their investigations. I mean, the, the problem for Republicans right now is they really do feel like, and it's, it's ironic, you mentioned it a little bit earlier with regards to kind of where Democrats are and Republicans with regards to spending. Republicans historically did have some suspicion about the federal government, but they were always pretty strong with regards to the FBI and law enforcement and and those types of issues. And now with the Steele dossier and and with regards to what happened with the former FBI director and with with Ray and with McCabe and 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 Page, there's a lot of questions whether the thumb in the federal government is just anti-Republican. So even though it's a small portion of the Republican Party, it's a vocal one that wants to see and I think punish the federal government for doing what they perceive to be wrong. My view is we as a Republican Party tend to overplay our hand much, much too much. There's no need to go out and do those impeachment hearings. You're not going to find out anything really more than what would happen if you let the Republicans continue their investigations as they control the House, bring people in, depose them, and put that information out. So that's the right play. I think Mike's right insofar as if we, I mean, Bill Clinton, we overplayed our hand with his impeachment. It was about sex. What they should have been doing was looking at the corruption that happened with regards to the Rose Law Firm and billing and other sorts of stuff, which was I think truly criminal, and we blew it because we overplayed our hand with a blue dress and and biological fluids. I mean, I don't want us to do the same thing in this election cycle, overplay our hand and cost us. There's plenty to do in the Biden administration on its failures and, and Biden's failures itself that we don't need to goof around in 
in impeachment hearings. Is a hand being overplayed with Hunter Biden in that uh, there are certainly questions and not only about his character, but his criminality and things that have to be pursued, and an indictment probably is on the way, but there's a kind of moral equivalency that seems to be coming from many in the GOP to what problems Trump has, and that doesn't seem to equate in most, I think, citizens' minds. Well, I think you, I think you hit the nail on the head. It's a lot of Trumpies don't go after Trump for all of his criminal, you know, or at least alleged criminal issues that are being brought in four jurisdictions now. Um, but the problem is that the public is not, I mean, look, Michael, I'm, I'm sorry, but our media is not what it once was. It's just not. I mean, you get public radio that does long form journalism now and talks these things through, but newspapers are a shell of what they once were. Networks are a shell of what they once were. Now you've got cable TV that has basically divided up sides. It reminds me of journalism back in the 1840s to the 1890s. It's, you know, it's very colored. And so it is very easy, in my view, uh, to throw in Biden as a criminal enterprise with regards to getting money to his son and his brother and his sister and his nieces and nephews and muddy that water up. So I don't disagree with you that people shouldn't look at Trump and the Trumpies should be looking at Trump himself. But from a, a mass media pol political perspective, I think you can throw Brian into Brian. Biden into that briar patch as well. And, you know, we'll see. But I got to tell you, I mean, the Bursama stuff, uh, um, in, in true disclosure, I've had a couple clients that were Ukrainian in the past. I've been to Ukraine several times. I'm helping uh, send uh, uh, humanitarian assistance to Ukraine. We've sent medical supplies over there. So I'm very, very engaged with that country. And to do business in that country at a high level, um, it's a pretty sketchy thing. I mean, the president just fired his defense minister this week with regards to corruption in that country. And if you're going to be dealing with Gazprom in Russia or dealing with Bursama, the gas company in Ukraine, it just reeks of corruption. And who knows what Biden the son did and dragged the dad in and the dad might not have been paying attention to. But I think that's a real potential issue going forward with with Joe Biden. And now he's got Justice Department people looking at it. People leak stuff out of the Justice Department all the time. So if they take their foot off the gas, like they did with the IRS investigators, I think they're going to have a whole political problem and issue in this election going forward. So I, I think this is really going to be a nagging problem for the president all the way through the election. Well, let me ask you, and I want to get to some questions that are coming in, but the, um, the Democrats and Biden particularly are seemingly fully behind Zelensky and, and Ukraine in this war with, with Russia. Uh, it doesn't seem to be the case with the Republicans. I'm not only talking about Vivek Ramaswamy, but I'm talking about other Republicans who don't want to give the aid to Ukraine, especially when armaments are concerned. And now Ukraine's going to North Korea, no less. But I'm just wondering about your take on that, that the Republican Party, I mean, Mitch McConnell and company, for how long he's going to be in good shape, we don't know, but they seem to be behind President Biden on this. But there are other Republicans who aren't. Think about somebody like Tucker Carlson, for example, who is very strongly opposed to aid to Ukraine. Uh, I don't know if he's a registered Republican. I wouldn't necessarily uh, wager on that. But you know what I'm saying. There's division within the party about whether Ukraine should be helped and to what extent. Well, so this is an issue that drives me absolutely bonkers. So Ronald Reagan, George H.W. Bush, 
I mean, it was the evil empire. Russia occupied most of Central Europe and Eastern Europe um, until the fall of the Berlin Wall. We spent hundreds of billions, trillions in defense on dealing with Russia. Russia overplayed its hand. It's invaded a country. When uh, Iraq invaded Kuwait, we helped expel them from that country. We have a policy where you don't take over other countries by force. And so I just think it's absolutely crazy from a Republican Party's sole perspective not to be on the side of people who want to repel Russia, who illegally invaded their country. It's just crazy. So now what I will say is you do get noise from the Tucker Carlson's of the world. You do get noise from the Marjorie Taylor Greens and some of the more, um, in the kindest word I can say, colorful members of the Republican House. But that said, Mitch McConnell's health, which you raised, he did a meeting last week after he had his second, you know, freeze up uh, incident. He presented uh, information to his own caucus about his his mental health, his mental acuity, his physical health. There was not an issue raised in that caucus meeting, uh, not even by um, the doctor in Kentucky. Um, you mean Rand Paul? Rand Paul, thank you. Um, and then the other issue um, with regards to Ukraine, Here, here's something very important. This is why Mitch McConnell, I mean, I, I was skeptical if he had the force of will to kind of lead the party, but he is our party leader right now, and he's done a masterful job. I mean, he would have done better in that Senate race if we didn't have a bunch of knuckleheads uh, who he didn't support in primaries, who ended up being the primary or ended up being the you know general election folks. I think he would have picked up three or four Senate seats. Um, but we had some, you know, Trump aud oddities who ran for the Senate, and it cost uh, him the Senate majority. But, but that said, McConnell's done a great job. He has his caucus all lined up with regards to um, supporting Ukraine. There's not issues on the Republican Senate side. The issues are on the House side. And so with regards to McCarthy only having a five-seat majority and some of the knuckleheads that are protesting the expenditures, um, that potentially could be a problem uh, with regards to Biden and Biden's policy of getting the next $27 billion out the door. I think it's bad politics for the Republicans. I think it's bad policy to be playing around on this. Let's take Russia off the international uh, game board, and then let's focus our military attention and prevention in dealing with China, because China is a much larger threat. Their military is a much bigger problem. Our ability to contain China, uh, which is expanding everywhere in the world, including um, the rest of Asia, as well as in um, Africa, is problematic. So that's our foreign policy issue. Uh, the day is China and the let Russia implode and take itself out of the game. Um, and, you know, we, we thought we were going to lose millions of people if we ever had a war in Europe with Russia. And the fact that they're contained in Ukraine and the fact that not one NATO member is losing his or her life in in this Russia's fool's errand is, is sorry, but it's good foreign policy for the United States and it's good foreign policy for, for all of Europe. And, you know, if Russia's smart, they lick their wounds, take their losses, go back and rebuild for 20 years. But Republicans really, really need to be smart on this issue and then pivot towards China. Well, China is, uh, you know, for a while there was talk about hegemony over the West and over the U.S. Suddenly they're having economic problems that weren't anticipated. But the one thing that seems to unify your party is disdain and contempt and anger at Xi and the Chinese government. Peter Beinert had a column recently, and I just wonder your thoughts about this, where he said 
the reason that China has so much unified GOP opposition to it, and Russia has this division with China, between Russia and the Ukraine, and some who even support Putin uh, in the Republican fold, is because uh, China's not a Christian country, and it's not a Western country, uh, and it's not uh, a European country, in other words. Uh, Beinert makes that kind of dichotomy or division. I'm not sure I buy it, but it's an interesting thesis, nevertheless, to, to consider, that that's the thing that unifies the Republicans is seeing China as the enemy and not necessarily seeing Russia as the enemy. And he said it even goes back to the name John Birch, which was given to the John Birch Society, first person killed by the Chinese communists. We used to call the Chinese commies when I was a kid, you know, reading those comic books about the Reds from China and all that sort of craziness. So there is a kind of division there. You want to mull that over a little bit? And we'll, we can well, I, I don't. Look, everybody's got to have an angle for a column, right? This is a novel issue. I, I don't think Christianity is the driving force. But I will say, and in full disclosure as well, I have a couple of Chinese clients. Um, and I have traveled to Asia uh, multiple times a year, um, you know, upwards of four to six times a year. Uh, usually in China. And so I think the United States needs to put its big boy and big girl pants on and be realistic about where we are right now in our country. And so when I go to China and I look at what's happening in that country with regards to their manufacturing prowess, their supply chain uh, prowess, the fact that they can innovate and move very, very quickly, uh, they are just kicking our our hides in with regards to how they manufacture, what the prime economic drivers are. And so, you know, we manufacture internet stuff, right? Meaning we put content on the internet, but we don't manufacture and we're not an economic power anymore. Uh, China did, I think about six, eight months ago, they um, launched five destroyers in one month, military destroyers. And as What's coming up next week and between now and, and, and the holidays break is going to be hearings with the U.S. military that we can't even build a submarine and a half in one year, that our, our Navy destroyer program is falling way behind and we can't produce anything. So the Chinese are sending us a very strong message. The Chinese are also going out and they have a lot of things going on with intellectual capacity. They have a lot of things going on in manufacturing, but they lack a lot of natural raw materials. So I think when Russia is weakened, they're going to get a lot of stuff from Russia, oil and gas, which they're already getting now, as well as rare earths. They're doing that in Africa. They're doing that all along the South China Sea issue. Their borders is because they want to have those natural resources. And we're in a competition. We, if you want to be a great power or the superpower, Russia used to be our challenge, and now our challenge is in China. But we're not doing the things that we need to do to be a superpower, and we are very, very vulnerable. I mean, you look at, I mean, Joe Biden said this, he, it was the worst kept secret in America, that you know, we can't build HIMARS missiles quickly. We, we were running out of uh, artillery shells because we can't manufacture them very well. We don't have the supply chain base. I was in North Carolina two weeks ago. I'm trying to open up a factory for one of my clients in North Carolina. We were looking at a factory space for a Hunter Douglas blinds company that is moving its its manufacturing to Mexico. And this is a Chinese company that wants to open a factory in, in North Carolina. They just opened a factory in Texas. 
They, by the way, they're trying to open factories, but they can't get workers to come in there. They don't have supply chain issues. And when they try and get the machines over to the United States so these American workers can have factory jobs, the U.S. government won't give the people permits that can deliver the machines and train the people on the stuff. But then you go to the southern border and you can just walk right across. Here's an iPhone or a, a Samsung phone and they just turn them loose in New York. Our policies are just really screwed up, Michael. And so beating up on the Chinese for the fact that they're beating us up on a manufacturing front and beating us up on an economic front, we have little to blame but ourselves for that issue. We don't mine things in the United States anymore for environmental reasons, a whole host of other issues. Joe Biden just took a million acres off the table with regards to energy development in Alaska. So we're kicking ourselves in the in the backside. So I don't blame the Chinese for that. Uh, I, blame our, I blame the United States uh, policies. Well, let me go to uh, some of the questions, and uh, thank you for these questions that are coming in. Uh, this first one comes to us from Reed, a regular listener of this podcast, who says, should something happen that precludes Biden running, who do you think might rise to the challenge? Well, I mean, I think that every time that uh, Gavin Newsom ever goes to an, a room where Joe Biden is, the Secret Service are looking to make sure he didn't drop banana peels or you know, olive oil on the ground. I think Newsom is aggressively putting himself in a position to try and, and run for president of the United States. I think the vice president has done a deplorable job with regards to stepping up to the plate and putting herself in a good position. She was supposed to oversee uh, immigration issues and she's really been gone. I mean, not even on the on the field. What about I, Gretchen I Whitmer? I keep hearing her name. Sorry? The governor of Michigan, Gretchen Whitmer. Well, yeah, I guess certainly she, I think the Democrats have some potential candidates there, but I mean, the Democrats are in a, in a bind. I mean, the African-American vote really is what, you know, by their turnout is what made that coalition, made Joe Biden president. And you've got a vice president who has helped to seal that deal. And she's got to be the leading candidate if Biden decides not to run. And the, I think the Democratic Party will tear itself apart um, if they don't support uh, Vice President Harris, or another African American person. I think they're in, a, in an awful bind in, in that regard. I think Newsom's got the chutzpah to still try and run regardless, um, and and Harris is is hurting herself even amongst African American voters right now, insofar as her her world salads. I, I see. I don't understand this. I was in the office of the vice president as well. You have speechwriters. They give you great speeches. They put them on teleprompters. You have talking points. All you have to do is read what is on that glass screen, and she seems to be either unwilling or unable to do that. And so that this is another major problem for the Democratic Party right now insofar as giving a pacifier or a safety blanket to say, well, you know, if, if Joe did have a problem and he disappeared, we've got somebody great sitting in the wings. They may not be perfect, but... Harris has just so undermined her position as being a competent and even marginally strong enough person for that job. So, as I say, you only have to be faster than the guy running next to you in the political forum. Oh, she does have the lowest poll numbers of any vice president in a number of years. Ever. Uh, uh, yeah, actually in modern times. Uh, here's uh, a listener from Norfolk, Virginia, who says, how do we—this gets back to something you said before, Sean, but— Maybe uh, some wisdom on you can shed on this. How do we reinvigorate discourse between very separate ideologies in this country? Well, I don't know. I'd, I'd like to find some way to... I despair of that. Uh, I don't know about you, but... No, you well, I'd love to find some way to, to 
to put a short circuit into Twitter or social media where we now literally only communicate in, it used to be sound bites on, in campaigns, but they're tweets, right? So if you're trying to communicate complicated issues in whatever it is, 48, 62, or 120 characters, uh, you're not going to have a discourse. You're just going to go for the heart of the jugular to try and influence people. I just think they're terrible for our political discourse. They're terrible for our long-term political health. Um, and so do I have an answer? I, I kind of don't. I mean, I'd like to go back to having interesting debates. I'd like to go back to actually having interesting community forms, but they have to be in such a place. I, I will tell you something else too, Michael. So I went to the Commonwealth Club, who historically, I think, just has been an absolutely wonderful vehicle and form. And I went and and I talked about certain issues with regards to, you know, the Republican Party and what they think and, and where they want to go. And I had people in the crowd just booing and hissing through a big chunk of that discussion. And I say to myself, you know, what's the point? I mean, this this is supposed to be one of the Bay Area's preeminent thought leader discourse form. And, and this is how the audience crowds react. So I think we all need to grow up as a society. And, you know, we may not agree with people we may not like what they have to say, but we have got to accept it. And it's a reality that, you know, the Democrats think differently than I do. And I think differently than they do. And we, you know, hopefully go to the election and don't try and go to Georgia and change the election. And, you know, as votes matter, elections matter. And you have that debate discourse along the along the way over years and and now this just shouting down and and other stuff and social media is just awful so um, so you want the social media influencers rather than your fellow attorneys to be the ones to uh come under the gun literally well they're the first ones to walk the plank the fish are hungry out there so i, got you. I care about the environment yes here's jerry from aurora you speak of not overplaying our hand as republicans so fellow Republican, did the Democrats overplay their hand when they impeached Trump twice over a lie on a phone call while Biden on TV bragged about getting Shokin fired? They absolutely overplayed their hand. I mean, actually, if you go look back on and in the impeachment proceedings with regards to Trump and Ukraine, I mean, that's a very, you know, careful what you wish for, because now if you compare what Trump did in Ukraine to what I think is going to end up coming out and what's already come out with Biden and his son in Ukraine, it it pales in comparison. So absolutely. Number one, those impeachments strengthened Trump's hand, even though you think it wouldn't. Uh, it did. So I would say that that uh, he's correct. It did strengthen Trump. It, it unified his people around him. It made it look like he was being attacked unfairly for what other people actually did. So, you know, the first one, I think they should have stuck with that. And the second one was a, an overplay of the hand. He did something very uh, actually deft. And I suppose if you admire this kind of move, psychologically strong and saying to people, if they do this to me, they can do this to you. And he had people, as a result, identify with him very strongly, especially his supporters and those who voted for him. I've got Eric now from Washington, D.C. And again, thanks for the questions that are coming in here. He wants to know, do you attribute any of Trump's popularity to a role as a culture war hero? Not so much his politics, but his willingness to be the non-politically correct lightning rod. You, sir, should win the billion-dollar lottery uh, that that guy in Florida won, because I think you have just distilled down 
the essence of what Trump is and the essence of what his political movement is right now in the country. He is he's a cultural warrior. That's simply all of his strength. Um, people are willing to actually I think Trump's administration had many, many very good policies. I liked his foreign policy issues on getting peace uh, negotiations going and actual treaty signed with Israel. I thought that NATO needed to be kicked in the backside to put more money into the issue. I think the regulatory schemes that he had with regards to uh, cutting back on regulations before new regulations were put into effect, all those were great policies, but no one pays any attention or remembers any of that. It's all cultural warrior. It's all the cultural wars. It fits perfectly into the YouTube environment, the Twitter environment, the Instagram environment, et cetera. So that's what people are mar are putting it on. They love the fact that the more he goes out and says silly things about people and the fact that he's willing to attack people and call BS on them. They love it. And it just absolutely furthers that issue. And with regards to um, the impeachment issue, people weren't listening to the substance. They just saw him as a cultural warrior going back against an overreaching federal government. And they wrapped the steel dossier into that issue and they wrapped some of the other, you know, federal indictments. I think it was a huge mistake politically and not that this was driven this, but to have the gal who claims that she was sexually assaulted in the dressing room to come out first, to have the Stormy Daniels prosecution stuff come out first. Uh, I think the stronger issues, the strongest issue was Georgia. And that's if you were going to prosecute what you should lead on, number one. Number two, I also think the fact that you have district attorneys uh, filing uh, criminal uh, matters against a sitting president or a former president, um, people wonder what the hell is a district attorney doing? My district attorney can do that stuff. It undermines the credibility uh, and furthers what you just said with regards to it's a cultural warrior and he's pushing back against an overreaching federal government. So and excuse Donald me, Trump. Sean, should yeah. Mark Meadows and the rest of them be tried in a federal court as opposed to being tried in Georgia? Well, I, I honestly think these are federal issues. It was a federal election issue. I don't think in my view, it should be a Justice Department or a U.S. attorney issue, not a district attorney issue. And I think the, uh, it came out shortly before the show started, but there was a 28-page um, uh, document that was produced by a special grand jury down in Georgia that also uh, recommended possible indictments for the two sitting U.S. senators in Georgia, Purdue and Lawfer, and and then um, the sitting senator in South Carolina, Lindsey Graham. I think the district attorney was wise enough to realize that, holy cow, if I take those and I indict three sitting United States senators, I'm going to have an absolute war on my hands, number one. And number two, it wasn't a unanimous recommendation. There were, I think, 10 votes for or 20 votes for and seven against on a couple of them. And the bottom line is with that going forward, they thought that they would lose. The Lindsey Graham issue that they were going after him on is the fact that he called the uh, the Secretary of State and said, I want you to, I think you should match the voter name to the actual vote. And so, you know, the fact that the person felt like that may have been pressure on him to take that action. I said, you know, I don't think there's any chance in the world that someone would be convicted in a court of law for that one comment. So, this district attorney was wise enough not to overreach and indict those people. But this just adds more fuel to the fire saying, oh, my God, this is an out-of-control government that's going after sitting U.S. senators for trying to make sure there's election integrity. And so uh, I uh, wisely she didn't try and indict. And, and um, anyway.
Should the Republicans be going after the head of Homeland Security? They're trying to impeach uh, Alejandro Mayorkas as well. Well, that's a different story. So I would argue that this this individual has a sworn obligation to protect the borders of the United States of America, and he's fundamentally failing at that. And Congress, under the Constitution, has the ability to remove a person who's a cabinet officer for for not doing his or her job. And in this case, uh, at least raising those issues continues to put pressure on them. And, you know, it is stunning to me, Michael, just stunning, uh, living in the Wilson era and watching how many media people bashing the governor for going out and saying exactly what the mayor of New York City is saying right now. And, uh, you know, I, I was in Oregon yesterday or day before yesterday coming back on a trip listening. Unfortunately, all you get is uh, Christian radio coming down through Oregon or public radio stations. And it was just listening to some of the public radio people talk and the experts they had on there saying, well, if they just give these people jobs and give them the ability to work, all the problems will be solved. And I'm like, holy cow, you know, it's these people are from Mars and other people are from Venus. People don't want people illegally into the country in massive waves that can't be uh, absorbed by governments. They're willing to take legal immigrants in in a measured way. But to say, come to New York City, here's a job, you can work right away. Every uh, person who has a dream of coming into this country illegally will hop on a bus or a train or walk right through the border. And again, I go back to my clients who cannot get people legally into the country with visas to open up a factory for American workers. So uh, I think this is a very legitimate issue, public policy issue. I think it's very legitimate to go after the secretary on this issue. And the bottom line is the president has not given a major speech on this. The vice president who's responsible for controlling the border has done nothing on this issue. And Mayorkas is, is you know, giving pablum and word salad. So we rely on judges who tell states like Texas that they can't put up their their borders uh, blockers on the Rio Grande River. Uh, the politics of this thing, I think, is absolutely toxic for the Democrats going into the next presidential election. Here's Kyle from Chicago who says, you mentioned journalism has changed, but hasn't politics changed as well? Is this a case of chicken egg? Well, I think uh, journalism has changed going back to the era of the politics change. I think, as I mentioned, too, if you look back in the you know pre-Civil War and post-Civil War era, you had incredibly, incredibly, uh, bias is not the right word, but people had a different perspective and they advocated and articulated that perspective. And I think politics was much uglier back in those days. So, uh, you know, I'm a big fan. I talked to your producer coming into this issue. She asked me to put my microphone on a couple of books and I put it on the books and I looked at it and I, some of them were history books. And I go back and say, you know, Americans need to read more books. Our country is not totally different from what it was historically with regards to divided politics and divided media. That said, it shouldn't be if we can be better than that. And we try and strive to be better than that. But, you know, it was a bit of a golden era, um, after World War II and going up into the, you know, mid-60s. And then when you had Johnson in the Vietnam War and you had, uh, you know, Nixon, things changed there. But there's no reason why we can't go back to those times if we're willing to be reasonable. But I think that the medium now, anybody uh, can be the town crier. Anybody can go out and post a YouTube video and have their crazy, uneducated, uninformed perspectives put out and then have it shared uh, 800 times if they have a 
dancing gorilla or something in the background. So how do I fix it? I don't know. But I, I do think the media has got to figure out, A, how to monetize itself, and B, going back to being a kind of more neutral platform where pe one people can go and get a general sense of, uh, of um, what facts are. What about the extremists, though, in your party? I'm thinking about not only people like Marjorie Taylor Greene, but Matt Gates and others who essentially use the media very um, ably to raise money by saying things that other people, even within the party, a lot of them within the party, think are outrageous or are only hurting. And I'm talking about, you know, all the threats now to shut down financially if things aren't done that I alluded to earlier with the possibility of impeachment of Biden. But even beyond that, it's it's now kind of the club that's being held over uh, the head of not only uh, not only McCarthy, but really the American people shut things down financially unless we get our way. Well, you're right. Although I will tell you. So, again, why do I love Mitch McConnell? And I, you know, have a little Mitch McConnell button or flag out in front of my house is because he has done an incredible job. So one thing uh Members of Congress got rid of earmarks back in the day because they thought it was, you know, soft graft or corruption. Well, McConnell's kind of quietly brought back earmarks. And so if you yeah. look at what happened right now in Congress, and this is a story that should be told and it's not being told, is how functional Congress has been um, in the past six months. So we actually all uh, uh, appropriation bills were all done and already all passed, and they're all set up and ready to go. Um, and McConnell is largely responsible for doing that. And people are relying, including the speaker, honestly, to, for the Senate to be the same body and have that stuff pushed out of there. He also set it up in a way that now when they come back next week and between next week and the holidays is where all these members are going to go putting in their pet pork projects. They're basically, they, they say they're not earmarks, but they are earmarks. So all these amendments will be put in and members will be able to lubricate their district and lubricate their members and some people that may be angry about one thing won't be so angry when they get a park or something else there. So it's old fashioned politics and McConnell's uh, kind of uh, led that. And I think it's absolutely fantastic. Now, the deadline to have all this stuff pass is September 30th. Um, so it's going to be a tight race. But actually, the, the best thing about it is in politics, when I was in, also in the governor's office for two governors, an awful lot of things get done in a short period of time. You like that pressure to get the diamonds, the squeeze. So I think that we will go forward. You are right. Um, McCarthy only has five votes, and you do have some, you know, knucklehead crazies that are screaming, we want to shut the whole government down um, unless we get what we want. Oh, excuse and me, so Tommy Tuberville's done that with respect to promotions, for example. And this is on the abortion issue again. Yes. Uh, I, yeah, so I, I don't think I don't think that will... That won't be part of the having government run. I also do think if we're right up to the deadline and there's only a few issues that are outstanding, they'll probably get an extension for a week or two, and that'll be even better when they go out on recess and get it fixed. So I, I think the leadership is going to be on the Senate side. Most of that stuff will get done. I think I think um, McCarthy will be able to lubricate enough of his members with enough pork, uh, and pork's a bad word, but enough uh, constituent enhancements to get this thing done. And I got to tell you something, again, I, I, I am a fiscal conservative. I don't like, you know, inappropriate and ridiculous government spending, but I am certainly, as a person who's been inside the political world, all about making sure that 
there's enough lubrication and uh, what's the thing on airplanes they use? Enough hydraulic fluid to make sure that the plane keeps flying and doesn't crash and burn. So go Mitch McConnell and go old politics. Oh, Mitch McConnell, from your perspective as a fan of his, better stay healthy to ensure all that. And you could make the argument, many have, that uh, Mitch McConnell is probably better for the Democrats than they realize because he's able to work compromises through and has in the past. He's able to cross party lines in ways that used to be almost perfunctory or de rigueur, but certainly aren't anymore. I want to ask you also about your thoughts on, we were talking about Ukraine and I'm struck by this whole, new, Walter Isaacson has a new book out, which I'm certain you're probably familiar with, but essentially the argument there is that Elon Musk really hurt Ukraine in the war efforts by shutting down Starlink. Uh, Musk claims that he was afraid that it would result in use of nuclear weapons by Putin. But uh, for the most part, it's, it's being analyzed and seen as Musk on the side of the Russians or on the side of Putin. Sometimes. Well, so a couple. Yeah. So I, I'm very, very familiar with this particular matter as well as the Starlink. So I'm going to go back again to when I talk about, you know, our complaint about the Chinese do you know that we have been unable to launch rockets in the United States until Elon Musk and SpaceX came along because the rockets that we're using, the engines on those rockets were actually Russian. We couldn't even make engines anymore. So, um, and now that the war broke out, thank God Elon had his SpaceX going and you could, we would not be able to get people off of the International Space Station without Elon Musk's crew dragon. We would have been begging the Russians in a war situation to fly one of their rockets up to get our people off. And the rockets have, their rockets have been working so well. The, the, the uh, satellites that Elon Musk has put out, doesn't that tell you that we have a problem insofar as that we don't have satellite networks sufficient enough to do what Elon Musk is actually doing with his Starlink? It's, it's crazy. I just think it shows that our infrastructure is down. With regards to Elon Musk in that particular matter, he did shut it off. Those boats did go awry. But for the most part, the system has been on uh, almost the entire war. How do you think that these uh, guided missiles that are coming in, the glimmers, additions onto the uh, missile packs are doing. It's all of his thing. So Isaacson is a brilliant, brilliant uh, journalist. Um, I think his book is going to be fabulous. He's following Elon around. But the truth of the matter is that was one instance. I think he shut it off once or twice. Uh, he shut it off one time because the U.S. government wanted Musk to give it all for free to the Ukrainians, even though the U.S. government was paying t tens of billions of dollars to everybody else to be vendors. So he shut it off. He turned it back on after he got a bunch of bad press. But he has been very effective and very helpful. And honestly, the Ukrainian war uh, would not be going anywhere closely as well if it wasn't Elon Musk's system um, helping them out. Well, the war continues, though, uh, unfortunately, and I think China is probably watching this a lot more carefully than we realize. They may have been, uh, well, more impetuous to go to Taiwan or to go to the South China Sea until this thing has dragged out the way it has, which may have slowed them down. you think so? I think just the opposite. I think, actually, it's probably accelerated there. Uh, if they do want to take a military route, accelerated that. Why? Our stockpiles of weapons are at absolutely, you know, bare bottom uh, levels. It will take literally years to gear up production lines to make the kind of weapons that we want, number one. Number two, uh, a lot of the drones that have been 
uh, on both sides uh, used a very effectively or Chinese manufactured um, uh, components inside the drone. Uh, so, you know, I've always worried, you watch that the Ch Beijing Olympics where you see these dancing drones making, you know, smiley faces and pouring a glass of wine or whatnot. Well, you know, it doesn't take much to turn all those drones and drop them over a U.S. warship in the South China Sea and put that thing out of commission. You may not sink it, but you'll make it no longer functional. So I think the one of the biggest interesting things about the Ukraine war is you can have a $100 million anti-aircraft system and a you know $1,000 drone turns it into a pile of ash, and there's nobody better right now at making drones than the Chinese are. So you know my concern is the Chinese are feeling awful good about what they can do from an asymmetric perspective, and they're getting much stronger with regards to raw military might. So if anything, I think this emboldens the Chinese to be more adventurous in the South China Sea. And I don't just mean Taiwan. I mean Vietnam. I mean the Philippines. Uh, anybody that that borders that area. We did a podcast with Orville Shell. He had some analysis which suggested that maybe uh, they're just sort of biding their time here and waiting in the wings until they can take more aggressive action. Uh, but we'll have to wait and see who's the better prognosticator here. I wanted to ask you, we've got a couple other questions I'd like to go to, time permitting, and time is not on our side here, but 14th Amendment, some thoughts? constitutionally? Well, it cuts both ways. Let's put it that way. So, I mean, it could have, it could have potentially impacted Trump. I think it certainly can impact uh, President Biden. My view is it's something that you really, really, really don't want to uh, use unless somebody's in a hospital bed with a tube in their nose and a tube in their arm and then maybe a tube somewhere below. So uh, it's very dangerous ground and people get very angry if, if you try and execute on that. And a big question from Chicago, uh, has the American dream changed? And if so, has it changed politics? Well, so I think the American dream has changed. I think that um, I'm concerned that uh, where I go, even when I'm trying to find, we were trying to find workers for some of these factories, I think the government has set up a, a safety net, particularly post-COVID, where they pay for your rent and they pay for money, even though it, a lot of people would say it's subsistent living, it's not living. But I think we've taken a certain amount of our work ethic out. I think from our schools, we are uh, not rewarding kids that are smart and show great potential. We spend way too much money in remedial education. I know that sounds awful harsh, but you know, if you're going to make the, the jobs of tomorrow and the technology and everything else along those lines, you need to support people that are that are young or they're immigrants and they're smart and they're going to change the world. I just think that we don't make the right investments on our educational level um, from our government perspective, and we just put way too much money to places that just basically don't really have major effects in promoting our jobs, our economy, and our, you know, American dream. And I wonder, on that note, if you have some thoughts about a study I just saw of rank-and-file Republicans who more than ever in numbers uh, care about and are concerned about economic inequality. I mean, there are many who would think that that was some kind of myth, but it, the, the data is there. But they just don't want the, the government to be involved in making sure that and they don't want sanctuary cities and all the rest of that. Put that aside. They'd like to do something about the terrible division that exists in this country economically between the poor and those who are better off. So what can be done? What should well, be you policy wonder, so here? You, people wonder about that. But, you know, the Republicans that are probably in those surveys see 
the billions of dollars going to internet tech moguls who go to take magic mushrooms and go out to Burning Man and they're stuck in the mud. And it's by so the way, it's called Drowning Man now. By the Drowning Man, yes, very good, or Mud Man. Um, but I, I, they see a lot of this tech money and they don't see it, you know, going for the greater good, even though Google, I mean, that's their name, but they see it supporting public policies that they don't agree with. They think they're entitled folks. And so, you know, the old days when you had a big factory or the quote unquote Republican industrialists, I mean, you look at, you go around Cleveland, Ohio, and you look what Standard Oil built. I mean, there's museums and there's all sorts of other things. And I just think that Republicans see a lot of these moneyed people, either Hollywood or tech, and they don't see them representing, you know, jobs and spreading the love and the wealth out. So I think that's probably driving more than anything else, the sentiment. Now, if you drilled down and spent time thinking about it, you'd probably think differently. But the bottom line is, I think that's the large driver with Republican sentiment. Well, then final question. If uh, Donald J. Trump is reelected president of the United States, and nobody can predict what will follow, particularly with all this legal action, but there seems to be a plan in the works, from what I read, to dismantle the FBI, maybe start over the way uh, Vivek wants to do things, or dismantle the Department of Justice, uh, but really take things apart, get rid of the bureaucrats, but particularly get rid of the enemies and those opposed to Trumpism. Is that a clear and present danger to democracy? Oh, I don't, I, you know, Republicans have been saying forever they want to dismantle the Department of Education, right? Where's the Department of Education? It's still there. I think that's rhetoric. I think that's red meat. I do think, honestly, and I'm a tremendous supporter of, and historically have been the Department of Justice and the FBI, but I do think politics has gotten in, in there to a large extent. I think the Steele dossier did incredible, incredible damage to the FBI and to the Justice Department. And so I do think there needs to be some, and maybe Congress needs to put certain ethical things in in, in line, but I don't see them de- being dismantled. I don't see them being undone. Now, I will tell you in my law firm, we've got um, three former U.S. attorneys and we've got a number of White House counsels, et cetera. And so even though I am a tough law enforcement guy, I do think there is prosecutorial overreach, um, both from a you know, political perspective as well as some of these companies. And a lot of these folks that are in the prosecutorial world want to put uh, trophies on their walls. And sometimes I, I do think they overreach. And so I think there needs to be some temperance or thought going into this. Uh, but on the other hand, I mean, Republicans are screaming bloody murder this week insofar as that person who was in, involved in one of the Black Lives Matter uh, riots uh, who uh, helped burn down a store where a person died and the autopsy showed that he died basically on the fire, who the Justice Department wrote a memo saying, hey, you know, uh, this person was doing what he believed in and he got a little bit out of control and Republicans scream, well, um, you know, that's what happened at the the uh, riot in the, in the U.S. Capitol. Some people got out of control and they did what they believed. And my view is I would give the maximum sentence to the people that were rioting in the Capitol and I'd give the maximum sentence to the person who created the death of a person in their store. But my point being is I think the justice symbol of the blind lady with the scales needs to go back to the blind lady with the scales. I mean, they really need to have kind of strict guidelines and not deviate from them. And, you know, let the judges figure out um, what a sentence should be and temper at that, not let the prosecutors 
uh, act like a judge going into the process with sentencing recommendations as well as their uh, overusing their prosecutorial discretion. Well, on that note of uh, caveats where justice is concerned, thank you, Sean. Good to have you thank with you, us. Thank you, Michael. And thanks to all of you who joined us live for this episode of Gray Matter with Michael Krasny. And thank you to all who will be hearing the episode on Apple, Spotify, or on our website at graymatter.show. That's great with an E. And if you haven't joined our growing community of listeners, please go directly to our website at graymatter.show and become a member. And thanks to our Gray Matter team. Uh, Gray Matter with Michael Krasny team, Alex, Shannon, Colin, Chad, Kevin, Jeff from down in Florida, and Mickey in the Philippines. And thanks to this week's guest again, Sean Walsh. I'm Michael Krasny. Bandwidth for Gray Matter is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com.